I'm Audrey Cooper, the editor-in-chief of the San Francisco Chronicle, and today on Fifth and Mission, we're talking about the Equal Rights Amendment. It's back after decades in traction. But before we get to that, we still want to know what you think about our podcast here at the Chronicle. If you haven't done it yet, please go to sfchronicle.com slash podcast survey. If you complete the survey, you'll be entered into a chance to win a $100 gift card. But most importantly, we really do want to know what you want more of, less of, and what you think about our podcasts. Joining me today is Dustin Gardner talking about the Equal Rights Amendment. So Dustin, you're in Washington right now, and um, you've been covering this issue for us. Maybe you should get us up to speed. What is the Equal Rights Amendment? Yeah, so the Equal Rights Amendment, this was a huge cultural fight back in the 1970s and early 80s. Basically, all the amendment does is it states that um, no state or the federal government can abridge equal rights on, on account of sex, basically saying that writing into the Constitution that men and women are equal under the law um, this the the effort to pass the ERA fizzled um, originally when the deadline of 1982 passed. That was the deadline that Congress had set um, for for three for three quarters of the states to ratify the amendment. And you know, back about four decades ago, uh, when this deadline passed, everyone sort of assumed this was a dead effort. Um, but it has had this massive resurgence in the last several years. Um, Three more states have ratified pushing the amendment past the uh, critical 38-state finish line to get to uh, that three-quarters. Um, but now there's a debate over whether those extra ratifications or those three additional ratifications count because that 1982 deadline had passed. And so that's the fight that um, is now being debated in Congress. So what are their arguments that that deadline doesn't count anymore? You would think you set a deadline, didn't get to it, end of the story. Yeah. So in the Constitution, there there is no requirement that a, an amendment be ratified within a certain amount of time. Congress has over the years set a precedent where they created deadlines for amendments um, and they have in the past extended those deadlines. However, they have there's never been a case where Congress um, revived a ratification effort once the deadline had already passed. They'd extended it, but they haven't ever you know completely erased or revived the deadline. And the, the bill that Congress is now um, debating, which is sponsored by our Bay Area representative, Jackie Spear from San Mateo, this would essentially erase that 1982 deadline. And her argument is, you know, there is no requirement under the Constitution. Congress has the right to do this. The only mention of the deadline in the RA uh, was in the preamble. It's not in the text of the amendment itself. So Congress can extend or or erase the deadline with actu without changing the text of the amendment. Uh, but on the flip side, the Trump administration and opponents of the ERA have basically said, you know, once a deadline is passed, it's passed. It, it would, they, in their words, they think it would be somehow uh, an abuse of Congress's authority to go back and revive an amendment um, when the states ratified it with that deadline in mind. So the the ERA, let's go back like a hundred years. It's it's almost a hundred year old fight. How are we getting to now in 2020 where this is coming back to the forefront? Yeah, so this this all started back, um, you know, right after uh, the passage of the 19th Amendment. Suffragists um, wanted to keep the effort going, and Alice Paul 
who was a big leader in that movement, she introduced the ERA. It was introduced in Congress in 1923. It didn't get a lot of traction back then. Um, and then in the 70s, you know, when when there was a, a large feminist movement that, that kind of got started, with, then it was revived and Congress voted to send this to the states in 1972. And at the time, it had wide bipartisan support. It was the, the amendment was passed it by um, two thirds of the House and the Senate back in the early 70s, sent to the states. And then all of a sudden, something happened. There was this massive kind of uprising in the among the religious right. Um, activists like Phyllis Schlafly, um, uh, kind of basically, kind of the the seeds of. The, the Reagan conservative movement got started in, in the mid-late 70s, um, and conservatives mounted this massive grassroots campaign to fight the ERA. Um, and, you know, they talked about all these fears of things like um, women losing parental rights or there being unisex bathrooms, women serving um, in combat in the military. And, I mean, the funny thing, talking to a lot of the women that have worked on this for a lot of years is they they reflect on those arguments from the 70s and a lot of the those fears have come to pass and you know the, in their words they say society hasn't crumbled um but but like i said before after the 1982 deadline um a lot of uh, a lot of people just assume the effort was gone and then it's had this massive resurgence in popular culture in the last you know 5 6 or so years um, we have the extra three states that have come along to to push it past the finish line. And it, there's just a lot more attention around these types of issues. We have a lot of celebrities like Alyssa Milano, many others that have elevated the ER debate back into public discourse. The first time I really started paying attention to this coming back into the news was when the Virginia legislature decided to pass it. And and that seems like it was a um, a direct reaction to a lot of focus by Democrats of, of getting legislatures to flip to being blue in the in the last couple of elections. Um, is that really is, is Virginia where this started really picking up steam? Well, so the first state to to revive the ratification effort was Nevada in, in 2017. They were the first to ratify after that 1982 deadline. And then Illinois followed suit in 2018. And then Virginia, which ratified um, in just January of this year, January 2020, they were that critical 38th state. So once Virginia voted, that was the moment where people around the country looked at this and, and said, oh, my gosh, there are there are 30 states, 38 states now. What is Congress going to do? What are the courts going to do? Um, is this going to become law? And the Trump administration had essentially preempted Virginia's move. And they, they've directed the federal archivist, who is essentially the librarian that records whether um, enough states have ratified a new amendment. The Trump administration has directed the, um, that archivist not not to uh, basically record the amendment as having passed because of this issue over the deadline. And so that that's being fought out in court. Several states have sued um, over over that over that procedural um, roadblock. And so now Congress is trying to reclaim the fight and get around the deadline um, and with in terms of Virginia, yes, that is a direct result of Democrats having flipped the majority in the state legislature there. 
And I should add that prior to Virginia becoming the 38th state, there were several other states, kind of battleground purple states that had that had attempted to be the 38th state. They, several of them had come up short, and then it wasn't until Virginia turned blue that they, they got enough. So I, I want to talk about why people are, are still against the ERA, given that a lot of the reasons that you've said were, that were initial complaints about it have have already started to come to pass. But before we get there, I want to talk about Jackie Spear, one of our local congresswomen who's really been taking this up in Congress. Um, I think anyone who knows her well or knows her record knows she's been a longtime advocate of women's equality. What role is she playing in Congress to have gotten this through the House? Jackie Spear has has really been the one of the foremost um, re- lawmakers working on this, her and Carolyn Maloney from New York, they have been kind of the ch- the longtime champions of the ERA um, for years in the House. So someone I interviewed for one of my stories told me basically Jackie Spear was fighting for the ERA before it became cool again. <laughs> um, and that, that kind of expresses the way people in the movement feel about her. There's a lot of respect um, among ERA proponents for Jackie Spear. She's been sponsoring this effort to extend the deadline um, for six years. She's been pushing this. So before Nevada or any of the other states um, followed and re- with their ratifications and her her effort on this, it's it goes back much further than um, Jackie Spear being elected in Congress. She first started um, working on this issue back in 1978 um, when she was an, an aide to Leo Ryan, the late uh, Bay Area congressman whose seat um, Jackie Spear now holds. Um, She was working for him back in 1978 when Congress um, first voted to extend the the deadline for ERA ratification to 82. Um, And at at the time, she she kind of told me a funny story about that. At the time, Leo Ryan was sort of undecided whether about whether he would support this effort to extend the deadline. And Jackie Spear, of course, as his congressional aide, um, was strongly urging him to to su- support the extension, and she wrote a legal brief for him, summing up the reasons why he should support it. And she told me she remembered sitting in the the House gallery as uh, so, you know a, a woman in her late twenties, um, not knowing what her boss, the congressman, would do. And she thought to herself, "If he votes against this extension, I'm going to quit." Um, but luckily, in her in her mind, he voted for it, and she kept her job. Um, and that that was kind of the start of her many decades of work on this effort. I'm speaking with Dustin Gardner about the Equal Rights Amendment. We'll be right back after this. So, Dustin, one of the things that I think is really interesting and has always been interesting about the fight over the Equal Rights Amendment is these arguments for and against. It it, it has always seemed to me that both sides have a little bit of a problem here because on one hand, people are saying, well, this isn't really going to change anything. We already have equal paternity rights. Women are already serving in combat. We don't need this anymore. And on the other hand, there's arguments that say, well, no, this is going to change a lot of things. Uh, you know, it would it would maybe extend abortion rights. And it, it sort of it sort of seems to say, no, there are some things that will still change. So can you sort out for us what are the arguments that are against the ERA in 2020? 
Yeah, that that is a really interesting part of part of this to cover. Um, just just the extent that the arguments have changed over time. A lot of the arguments that took um, that took center stage back in the '70s when this first became a cultural fault line. You know, issues about unisex bathrooms or use um, women losing parental rights. Those things, those issues really aren't part of the debate anymore because a lot of those things, you know, as proponents have pointed out, have they've come to pass or they just haven't been an issue. Um, so going, you know, uh, going to back to the arguments today, a lot of it really has been about the issue of abortion, um, at least from the side of opponents. Opponents say that their biggest concern with the ERA today is that it would enshrine in law the, the right to have an abortion and it would prohibit any sort of state laws that are designed to curtail access to abortion. Um, and they, they, they think that because essentially if the RA is in law, uh, any, any sort of state law that is designed to limit access to a, a legal medical procedure that's specific to women could be seen as discriminatory. And that's actually happened um, in some states that have adopted the ERA in their state constitution. For example, New Mexico, they have a version of the ERA in their state constitution, and that has been used to push back against some some restrictive state abortion laws. And, you know, our opponents of those laws have said, look, you're you're writing a law that's discriminatory against women. Um, so that's abortion's a really big piece of it. Um, but proponents of the ERA say that's really a non-issue in their mind because abortion is legal. The Supreme Court has ruled on that. They don't think that is what this is really about. They're a lot more focused on just really basic issues that affect women like equal pay. Women, on average, still earn about 81 cents um, for every dollar a man earns in America. They say that's a big problem. And and then also there's case, you know just court cases of sex based discrimination whether it's based um, on issues like wages or workplace accommodations for women that ha you know are, have had a pregnancy the legal test for determining sex based discrimination is a lower um, it's a, it's a less rigorous test than cases of discrimination that are based on either race or national origin other other types of discrimination are subject to more rigorous legal scrutiny because they are specifically mentioned in the Constitution, in the 14th Amendment, um, for example. Because women aren't mentioned in, in the Constitution, those types of cases where, say, a woman um, is is suing her employer because she feels like that you know she she's been discriminated against because of her pregnancy and wasn't accommodated in a in a way that a, a man might have been for some sort of um similar type of work leave that legal test um it's not it's not subject to what's called strict scrutiny it's subject to what's called intermediate scrutiny which is a low, lower barrier which makes it harder for women to show that they've been discriminated against on the basis of their sex. So so there are still some areas where at least this would help codify the law and make it easier to decide some of these cases that are coming up. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, Supreme Court justices have been very upfront about that. I mean, Scalia, Jackie Spear points often to a line from Scalia where he basically says, the you know, Scalia has been very plain spoken and saying this, the constitution does not prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex and having 
a specific amendment that mentions sex would make those sorts of legal tests much easier. And then beyond those types of cases, it would also make it easier for Congress to pass laws that specifically prohibit discrimination against women. Um, For example, a lot of the laws that prohibit things like um, female genital mutilation, for example, Congress is passing those uh, uh, by using its interstate commerce power. They're sort of finagling an argument that that is an interstate commerce issue, and that's why they can pass a law. But when it comes to FGM, for example, that law was recently in the last few years struck down by an appeals court, a federal appeals court, on that uh, based solely on the argument that the federal government doesn't have the power to pa- to, to regulate that, that it's a state's issue. And so by having women specifically mentioned in the Constitution, Congress would have much broader authority to pass laws um, that prohibit discrimination and other kind of um, behavior that, that is harmful to women. So, I, and I want to clarify one thing you just said about female genital mutilation. Maybe, I, I don't know if everybody actually knows what that is, but it's the ritual of cutting or removing of some external female genitalia that's very common in, well, maybe not very common, but is commonly found in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, and is often done to um, to limit young women's sexual activity. You're saying that the federal government has had problems main, maintaining, um, outlawing that in America because of these laws. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, th- there was a case out of Michigan where there was a doctor who was found to have performed um, s- some type of that surgery on on young girls, and the the judge essentially said that this is horrific. I'm not condoning this practice, but under the Constitution, he the judge didn't find that the, that Congress had authority to to ban the practice. It, it was a state's issue. This judge said, and obviously there's disagreements about that, but having the ERA in the Constitution would make it much easier for Congress to pass laws that would protect women when it comes to that sort of issue. So, so many things in Congress now are coming down to the House trying to get things through and the Senate not taking them up uh, for votes at all. Is that where this is going to break down to? Or is it possible that some female senators might change sides and and vote to um, keep this alive? So when it comes to the RA, the power is really in Mitch McConnell's hands now. Whether he'll bring this up to a vote um, on the Senate floor, we just don't know at this point. He has said that he's personally opposed to the RA. That's no surprise. He's very conservative. Um, but he hasn't he hasn't said whether he will allow a vote to proceed. And if a vote does proceed, there are two um, Republican women senators, um, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska and Susan Collins from Maine. They're co-sponsors of this legislation. They're definitely on board. All the Democrats are on board. They they just need two more Republicans to get a majority in the Senate um, to extend the deadline for ratification. No one is quite sure where there's two other votes could come from. But if it does come up for a vote, I I think there's at least a chance that they could get those votes to get through the Senate. We've in the House, there were five Republicans who voted for this, most of them men, actually Republican men from swing districts. And we've seen 
gradually the opposition from moderate Republicans to the ERA has dissipated quite a bit um, in the decades since, uh, you know, this deadline first passed. And does the president have any role in this political fight? The precedent, because this is an amendment and the Constitution gives Congress the sole authority to to send amendments to the states for ratification, the president really does not have a formal role in, in this in this decision, um, obviously, his Justice Department could challenge the legality of extending that deadline. But generally speaking, he doesn't have a formal role. There has been some precedent where presidents should this be get to the point of rat- of the ratification being certified. There has been a role in the past where presidents would ceremonially um, sign a new amendment of being certified into the Constitution. It, so there are points in this process where the president could try to assert himself. But generally speaking, he he doesn't have much say once three quarters of the states have ratified. And and the last question I have for you, because this is what every political fight is getting down to in 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 America today. Is this going to have any role on the 2020 election? I think Democrats feel like this is a very good fight for them to have. They, I, I mentioned just a minute ago that opposition from moderate Republicans has been waning. That's definitely true. And I, I think Democrats that I've spoken to, they really feel like this helps them when it comes to um, swing districts, particularly districts where suburban women can have a significant impact on the outcome of some of those tight races and purple districts. This is a fight they want to have. And, you know, Republicans obviously they're really courting their base by their their fierce opposition to this when it comes to the or- abortion argument. But generally speaking, I don't think Republicans feel like this is really a winning issue for them when it comes to swing districts. Dustin, thanks so much for explaining all of this to us, why we're, we're, we're discussing this fight that a lot of us thought was maybe over. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing all your reporting on it moving forward. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Dustin Gardner for being with me today. Remember, you can comment on what you think our podcast should look like on the future if you go to sfchronicle.com slash podcast survey. We want to know what you think. Thank you to King Kaufman for producing this episode, and thank you for listening. Fifth Emission is a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a financial supporter of the largest newsroom in Northern California. You can sign up for a San Francisco Chronicle membership at sfchronicle.com slash pod. 